Let me invite you this morning to uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation uh, 14 for our time of study in in God's Word. Uh, This morning we're doing a series through the book of Revelation and as we continue in our study through this book we come this morning to Revelation 14 verse 14 and my goal uh, this morning is to cover um, chapter 14 verse 14 all the way through the length of Revelation 15 verse uh, 8 and the title of the message this morning is Prelude to Wrath prelude to to wrath you know sometimes you can determine the greatness of a thing by observing the fanfare that precedes it for example when the Super Bowl comes around uh, each year there's a whole week of hype that leads up to the Super Bowl game on the day of the Super Bowl this past year uh, CBS started its pregame programming seven hours before kickoff and NFL Network's pregame programming started nine hours before the kickoff of the Super Bowl. And we have something infinitely greater that is happening here at this point of the book of Revelation that we have been studying. Uh, Revelation chapter 16 through 19, we can say, is the Super Bowl of Super Bowls. In fact, seven Super Bowls of God's wrath are going to be poured out upon the earth before the second coming of Christ. And we'll see these bowls poured out in Revelation 16 next week. And we already know that the pouring out of these Super Bowls of God's wrath is going to be truly epic simply from the pregame programming in the book of Revelation that actually begins back in Revelation 8. Starting in Revelation 6, we have seen Jesus break the seven seals of judgment upon the world. In chapter 8, we saw the angels sound four of the trumpets of God's judgment unleashing unprecedented judgments upon the world. And after these four angels have sounded in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, look at this verse. John says, And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Well, that piques our interest. What will these trumpets be like? Well, the next trumpet sounds in chapter 9, bringing a horde of demon creatures who torment men for five months. And then the sixth trumpet sounds, bringing an army of 200 million demon creatures who kill one-third of all mankind, leaving us now with bated breath, waiting for the seventh trumpet, which is the third woe that is supposed to come next. We turn the page to chapter 10, expecting to learn of this seventh trumpet, but instead we're treated to a commissioning ceremony where John is recommissioned 
to prophesy concerning the things that are about to come. And it's not until Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, that we read these words, beginning in verse 15. Look at your text. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So we turn the page to Revelation 12, expecting to see the fallout on earth of this seventh trumpet, but that's not what we get. Instead, Revelation chapter 12 tells us about the devil's persecution of Israel, who is driven into the wilderness to be nourished by God for three and a half years. Then there is war in heaven, and Satan is cast out of heaven and thrown to the earth. He falls to the earth in a rage, knowing that his time is short. He calls forth the Antichrist to world domination in Revelation 13 and calls forth the false prophet who performs signs and wonders to persuade the world to worship the beast and to receive his mark. Well, we then turn to chapter 14, expecting to finally see the impact of the seventh trumpet unleashed upon the earth, but instead... John tells us that he sees three angels flying across the sky in mid-heaven, declaring some messages to the inhabitants of the earth. The first angel declares the eternal gospel and calls upon the inhabitants of the earth to fear God and give him glory and to worship him. A second angel follows him, declaring the imminent doom of Babylon the great And then a third angel follows him declaring the eternal fire of God's wrath that will fall upon all those who receive the mark of the beast and worship his image. And the pregame programming still isn't finished before we get to the fallout of the seventh trumpet. Starting in Revelation 14, Verse 14, all the way through the length of Revelation 15, John sees four more visions before the bowls of God's wrath will be poured out, bowls which the seventh trumpet heralded. And it's these four visions that we will look at today. These four visions will serve to prepare the apostle John and us for the judgments that we will begin to see pouring out upon the earth in chapter 16. And these visions will, I think, teach us many things in the process that should impact the way we live our lives, even in the here and now. So the way we're going to break down our study of this passage is we'll observe four visions 
that John sees before the bowls of God's wrath are poured out upon the earth. And the first vision is this. John sees Christ reaping the withered harvest of the earth. John sees Christ reaping the withered harvest of the earth. What John will see in verses 14 through 20 is is kind of like two movie trailers of a coming attraction, a brief and picturesque depiction of what is about to be described for us in chapters 16 through 19 of Revelation. And observe what John sees in this first movie trailer, as it were, beginning in verse 14. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This son of man, as you know, is none other than Jesus Christ himself, When John saw Jesus back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, he described him as one like a son of man. And he describes him in the same way here. John notices that this son of man has the golden crown of victory on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The sickle is a handheld instrument with a sharp blade that was used in harvesting wheat. The fact that Jesus has the sickle in his hand indicates that harvest time has come and that he is ready to harvest the earth. John continues in verse 15 and says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. When you see this angel speaking to Jesus in this way, don't think of him as giving an order or a command to Jesus. Think of this angel as uttering an urgent petition. In fact, the text says that this angel was crying out with a loud voice. Obviously, this angel is very eager for Jesus to harvest the earth. Keep in mind also that this angel is coming out of the heavenly temple, which indicates that he's representing the will of God. And on behalf of God the Father, this angel cries out to Jesus And petitions him to put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. The Greek word that is translated ripe here is a most unusual word that probably gives us an idea of the kind of harvest that is being spoken of here. This word translated ripe here in this passage literally speaks of something that is dried up and withered. In fact, this very word is used in 1 Peter 1, 24, when Peter says the grass withers. And the Greek word translated withers there is the same word that is used here. This is the very Greek word that is used to speak of the fig tree that withered from the roots up after Jesus cursed it in Mark 
11:20. This word is used 16 times in the New Testament, and it always has a negative meaning. So according to the message of this angel, the harvest here, evidently, is withered and dried up and worthless and should be harvested and removed for this reason. Upon hearing this petition from this angel coming from the temple, Jesus responds in verse 16 where the text says, Then he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Again, this is simply the equivalent to a movie trailer that gives us a picturesque image of what is about to be narrated in detail in the coming chapters. Coming very soon in the book of Revelation is the story of how Christ is going to do exactly this. He will harvest the earth and he will separate those who believe in him from those who do not believe in him. But primarily in this passage, the kind of reaping being depicted here is not a good reaping of the souls who are saved. This is a reaping of the dried and withered souls that have been ruined and rendered worthless by sin. The dried and withered souls that will be reaped in this particular harvest will be good for nothing but to be thrown into the fire and burned. John sees this, and while he's processing this vision, something else happens that catches his eye. And this leads us to the second vision that John sees before the bowls of God's wrath are poured out upon the earth. Number two, John sees an angel harvesting the earth for God's wrath. John sees an angel harvesting the earth for God's wrath. At this point, the picture of the wheat harvest changes to a harvest of grapes. Observe what John sees in this second movie trailer of things to come. Verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. So this is clearly an angel of God who's going to be playing an assisting role in executing the harvesting of the earth. We know that because he's got a sharp sickle in his hand. Yes, Christ is the Lord of the harvesting, but he will use his angels to help carry out his harvest. Observe what happens in verse 18. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And we'll stop right there for just a moment. Literally, this text reads this way, then another angel, the one who has power over the fire, which leaves us asking, what fire is that that this angel has the power over? Well, notice where this angel is coming from. The text says that he came out from the altar. And you'll recall back in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, that when Christ broke the seventh seal, there was an angel who came and stood at the altar of incense, holding a golden censer. 
And we're told in Revelation 8.3 that much incense was given to him, to this angel, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And then in verse 5 of Revelation 8, we're told that the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then following all of that came the six trumpets of judgment. Well, this very angel, who back in chapter 8 took the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth to initiate the trumpet judgments that followed, this very angel is now acting again here in verse 18 of Revelation 14. And what does he do? In verse 18, John says that this angel the one who has power over the fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And the word that the angel uses for ripe here is a different word than the word translated ripe earlier this word translated ripe speaks of grapes that are full of juice and at peak readiness to be harvested at first blush that sounds like a good thing right but this is not a harvesting of something good look at verse 19 so the angel swung his sickle to the earth And gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Back in this day, grapes would be harvested and then thrown into a basin where they would be trampled upon by people's feet in order to squeeze the juice out of them. And then the juice of the grapes would then flow through a channel into a lower basin that would hold the wine. And that's what happens here. Only this wine press is called the great wine press of the wrath of God. So this is not a pleasant harvesting of joy. This is a harvesting of judgment. And this judgment is unimaginably awful. Observe what John sees in verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now we realize that these grapes evidently represent the rebellious wicked who when trampled upon will bleed and the amount of blood coming out of so many of them is staggering to behold. John does not tell us here in this verse who is doing the treading of the grapes. But later in Revelation 19, verse 15, John tells us that it is Jesus at his second coming who treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus does the treading. And as for where this treading will happen, John says 
that these grapes will be trodden outside the city, which teaches us that Jerusalem will be spared the bloodshed that's being spoken of here. And the result of the trampling, John says, is that blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles, which is about four feet high, for a distance of 200 miles. The literal Greek here says that the distance is 1,600 stadia, which is how the ESV and the NIV translate the expression here. Uh, This is approximately 184 to 200 miles in our reckoning, which is why the New American Standard gives it the value of 200 miles. But just when you see this, just think 184 to 200 miles, roughly. And using the language that John uses here, he isn't necessarily saying that this blood will flow this deep for the full length of the 200 miles. He's simply saying that the blood will come out from the winepress at this depth. And that the blood will continue to flow from there for the length of 200 miles. And that leaves us asking, how is that possible? Is this hyperbole? There's various explanations that commentators offer for this. It's helpful to know that in the next chapter in Revelation 16 verses 14 through 16, we're going to learn that the kings of the earth are going to gather in the valley of Megiddo or Armageddon which lies about 60 miles to the north of the city of Jerusalem and it is here where the greatest battle of the tribulation period will be fought millions are going to gather in this valley to make war with Christ and it is here that we see in Revelation 19 that Jesus will cut them to pieces with the sword of his mouth The valley of Megiddo drains into the Jordan Valley and thus into the Dead Sea, which would send the shed blood in that direction for many, many miles. In all likelihood, in the fallout of this awful battle, the Jordan River, in parts at least, will be blood red and its tributaries will be blood red with the blood of those who are slaughtered in this great battle. We also have indication in Joel chapter 3. You might want to write this reference down. Joel 3 verses 13 and 14 that God will tread the winepress of his wrath in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which seems to be closer to Jerusalem even than the valley of Megiddo. Some ancient traditions hold that this valley is the Kidron Valley that lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. But we don't know this for sure. Beyond this, we have reference in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4, of the Messiah treading the winepress of his anger in the year of redemption as far south as Basra in Edom, which lies to the south of Israel. The impression that we are left with is that Christ will be treading the winepress of God's wrath against the kings of the earth and their armies 
who have gathered against him, he will be treading the winepress of his wrath throughout the full length of the land of Israel when he comes and takes his enemies on, creating a flowing of human blood at every point where he slaughters his enemies who dared to rise up against him. But we learn here in verse 20 that Jerusalem will be spared the carnage. It's helpful for us to remember that from the very northernmost end of Israel to its southernmost end is roughly 180 miles. Meaning that John's point here is that blood is going to flow through the full length of the land of Israel. And at some points, this blood will flow as deep as four feet. Speaking of what is being alluded to here in verse 12, John Phillips, the commentator, says, What is signified is a vast destruction of human life, a slaughter beyond anything the world has known, a slaughter that begins at Armageddon and that continues on to the end of the judgment of the nations. The language that is used here, the imagery, and the reality that it is pointing to is simply astounding. And it's so sobering. It makes you want to put your hand over your mouth and fall silent as you consider the carnage and the wrath and the judgment that God is going to unleash upon those who rise up against him in this future day. That's how we would naturally respond, I would imagine, which makes what happens next all the more remarkable. This leads us to the third vision John sees before the bowls of God's wrath are poured out upon the earth. Number three, John sees victorious saints in heaven singing songs of triumph. John sees victorious saints in heaven literally singing songs of triumph. Observe what John says beginning in verse 1. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. The New American Standard Bible has these victorious saints standing on the sea of glass. The New International Version and the English Standard Version has them standing beside the sea of glass. The preposition that is used here in the Greek text could be translated either way. So it's a coin toss, in my opinion, as to whether these victorious saints are standing on the sea or beside the sea. By the way, the preposition used here normally means upon or on, but it does not always mean that. Revelation 3.20 Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Literally, I'm standing beside the door. He's not standing upon it, but by the door or at the door and 
Jesus uses the same preposition that is used here. So it could mean on or it can mean beside the sea of glass. I'll let you figure that out. Wherever these victorious saints are standing, they're happy to be there. John describes these persons as those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of the beast's name. These saints are in heaven right now, which means they've been martyred. They've been killed by the Antichrist. But John says that they are victorious over the beast, obviously because they did not succumb to the beast and worship him or worship his image and receive his mark. We learn in Revelation 12, 11, that these are the ones who overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, who did not love their lives even to the point of death. These victorious saints didn't just refuse to worship the beast. They were willing to die for their refusal to worship him. And their death merely promoted them to heaven. And John sees these tribulation saints right now standing on or by the sea of glass. This sea of glass is something we saw back in Revelation chapter 4, which John describes as a sea of glass-like crystal that is before the throne of God. And whatever this sea of glass is, it's large enough to look like a sea, of water to John. It's transparent enough to look like glass, yet John here describes it as mixed with fire. And we don't know the meaning of this fire. The fire may simply be a part of the splendor of this scene in this moment, but this fire also may represent the judgment of God that is about to fall from heaven to earth. Whatever this fire is, these saints have no fear of it. In fact, it looks like they're ready to make some music because John sees them holding the harps of God, which God evidently had given them to play. And these saints won't just be playing these instruments. They're going to sing too. Observe what John hears them doing in verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Just as the Israelites sang the song of Moses after their deliverance from the Egyptians, even so these heavenly saints will sing their song of victory. And for starters, they're going to sing in heaven the song of Moses. And fortunately, we are not left to guess about what the lyrics of this Song of Moses might be. You can find the lyrics to the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. In that chapter, we're told that after the Israelites came through the Red Sea safely and then saw the Egyptians destroyed by the Red Sea closing in on them, They sang a song, and you ought to read this song sometime. It's a song that many churches today would be very uncomfortable singing as a part of their worship service. In fact, I won't read the whole song to you, but here's a sampling. In Exodus 15, they sing, 
Beginning in verse 1, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. That's wonderful, right? The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. But you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The song continues from there, but you get the drift. During this time in history... During the tribulation period, the people on earth will be raving about the beast and saying, who is like the beast? And these saints in heaven will be singing to God, saying, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Notice that in the Song of Moses, they're rejoicing over how God destroyed the Egyptians in his burning anger. And he didn't just kill the Egyptians to kill them. He killed them in order to rescue his people from them. And in the Song of Moses, the rescued Israelites are rejoicing in the salvation that God has accomplished on their behalf. In the case of the Israelites in Exodus 15, they are rejoicing that God rescued them from death But here in Revelation 15, these martyred tribulation saints in heaven are singing this song as they celebrate how God rescued them through death and brought them safely into his presence to stand on or beside this sea of glass in his presence. And they don't just sing the song of Moses. John says, that he hears them also singing the song of the Lamb. This is a second song, which no doubt celebrates the fact that Christ died as the Lamb of God, but was raised to life and ascended to God with power to save those who believe in him and who now has the power to judge 
the world and defeat the beast and his false prophet and to establish his own kingdom on earth. The cool thing is that this victory has not even been fully accomplished yet, but these saints are singing this victory song of the Lamb ahead of time. They have no concerns about celebrating too early here. And we don't know all the lyrics to this song of the Lamb that these victorious saints are singing in this passage, but we know some of the lyrics because John tells us some of them in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, John says, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. They celebrate God's works here as great and marvelous. You could translate this great and amazing. Nowadays, we describe almost everything as great and amazing. But these saints rightly use these adjectives to describe God and his works. They speak of him as the Lord God, the Almighty, speaking of his absolute, unrestrainable power to do whatever he pleases, however he pleases, whenever he pleases. And they celebrate the fact that God's ways are righteous and true, and they speak of him as king of the nations. Some Greek manuscripts read king of the saints, and I believe that's reflected in some of your English translations. Other manuscripts read king of the ages, but solid Greek manuscripts read king of the nations. However you choose to read this, the meaning is clear. God is king of all forever. Given these truths about God, these victorious saints sing to God in verse 4, saying, look at verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Their question is, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? In their minds, it's unthinkable to them that anyone would ever refuse to fear this God and glorify his name. In their lyrics here, they express that God should be feared and glorified because he alone is holy, utterly unique, and separate from his creation. They also believe he should be feared and glorified because one day he's going to see to it that all the nations will come and worship before him And because his righteous acts have been revealed and the righteous acts they're speaking about are the acts of judgment that are about to fall upon the wicked inhabitants of the earth. And when you listen to what these martyred saints are singing here, you can appreciate what they're saying, what they're singing about. You can also, I think, appreciate what they're not singing about. First of all, as Warren Wiersbe says, there is no complaint from these saints here about the way God permitted them to suffer. You can bet that many of these saints were tortured horribly by the Antichrist. 
and those who did his bidding, but they voice no complaint about any of that here. Instead, they are full of joy. They sing about how God is righteous and true in his ways, and their only thought is that he be given the worship that is due to him. As Robert Thomas, the commentator, says, they are so absorbed with the larger picture of who God is and what God is doing that their personal sufferings are small in comparison. Trust me on this, guys. When, when you get to heaven, when we get to heaven, we're going to see all of our earthly trials and suffering in their proper light. And we won't feel the slightest inclination to complain about anything that happened to us on earth. For the glory that we will experience in heaven will far outweigh any suffering that we experience here. It's also worth noting that these saints are not singing about their own personal achievement and being victorious over the beast and not succumbing to worship him Their only focus is on God and his worthiness of worship and praise. No saint in heaven will be bragging about himself or herself and the good things that they did when they were on earth. Their boast will be in God and him alone. And this is what John sees these victorious saints doing in this moment when God is about to unleash his final devastating judgments upon the earth. The seven angels are poised and ready with their plagues, and these saints are singing songs of praise to God, rejoicing in their triumph. But this is not all that John sees. This leads us to the fourth and final vision that John beholds before the bowls of God's wrath are poured out upon the earth. And we're just going to, we'll pick up here next week, but we're just going to look at this very quickly. Number four, John sees the seven bowls of God's wrath given to seven angels from the temple. John sees the seven bowls of God's wrath given to seven angels from the temple. Observe what John says beginning in verse five. After these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen clean and bright and girded around their chest with golden sashes in case you're wondering the temple of the tabernacle of testimony is a reference primarily to the holy of holies the testimony refers to what was written on the stone tablets that were housed within the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept inside the Holy of Holies. What was written on those tablets was God's law, which has been forsaken by the world of this day. So John is seeing the curtain of the heavenly Holy of Holies being open and coming forth from the Holy of Holies are these seven angels dressed in priestly garb, coming straight from God himself, holding the plagues that they are about to unleash upon the world, plagues that have come from God. And once these angels come out 
of the Holy of Holies with these plagues. Observe what John sees happening in verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You'll recall that the four living creatures surround the throne of God. One of them is handing a bowl to each of the seven angels and these bowls are said to be full of the wrath of God which is interesting. Keep in mind that in verse 6, we see described that these angels are coming forth from the temple with the seven plagues. So they already have the plagues. And then on top of these plagues, they are each given a bowl full of the burning coals of the wrath of Almighty God. And once these bowls are given to the angels, observe what happens in verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Even glorified heavenly beings will not be able to endure to be in God's presence in his heavenly temple at this moment because his glory and power fill the temple with the smoke of his anger toward the wicked, unrepentant inhabitants of the earth. All eyes in heaven now will be directed toward the earth to see God's glory displayed in the wrath that he is about to have poured out upon the earth to bring history to its climax when Christ returns and judges all unrighteousness, judging the wicked, in establishing his kingdom on earth. And with that, guys, we conclude the very extensive pregame programming for the Super Bowls of God's wrath to be poured out in Revelation 16. The next chapter contains the third woe that was foretold back in Revelation 8:13. And you'll have to come back next Sunday to see John's account of what these bowls are and their impact as they are poured out one after the other upon the earth in this coming period of the great tribulation. We've waited as readers of the book of Revelation, we've waited a long time for these seven bowls that will finish the wrath of God. Even in the narrative arc of the book of Revelation, there's been a long delay that would understandably kind of frustrate the careful reader of Revelation and create within the reader a sense of pent-up anticipation which will soon be resolved. But that narrative tension that we feel harmonizes with the tension that we feel even today as we live in the world we live in. We can often feel frustrated at how long the Lord delays to bring an end to the wickedness of this world and to bring about his kingdom where his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we should trust God's sovereign providence and know that just as surely as the sun rises and sets, the day of his justice will come in his perfect timing. And when that day comes, we learn in this passage that the saints in heaven will rejoice 
and be singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. They're going to be singing about Jesus and singing about the victory that God has accomplished for them through Christ. And in that day, the heavenly saints will not find the doctrine of the wrath of God an embarrassing doctrine to be silent about. They will rejoice literally in the vindication of God's name as his wrath is unleashed upon the world. They will rejoice to see God showing himself true to his every promise to give justice to the unrepentant wicked. They will rejoice for another reason also that I'm not sure we think a lot about. Keep in mind that these saints will shortly be returning with Christ to earth, right? So that they can live with him through his thousand-year reign upon the earth during what's called the millennium. If you were one of them, would you want to return to an earth where those who tortured and murdered you are still running free? without justice I think I'd rather stay in heaven but through the judgments that are about to come Christ will bring justice to the wicked and ultimately cleanse the earth of them in order to make way for his precious people to live free of the oppression of the wicked forever and ever as Richard Phillips says It is through the judgment of the wicked world, let me start over, it is through the judgment of the wicked world that the people of God are saved from oppression. Just as Israel escaped the spears of Pharaoh's chariot host when the Red Sea waters drowned the enemy, so the saints in heaven stand beside the crystal sea praising God for saving them. Through the plagues that the seven angels will pour out upon the earth. As they see these plagues unleashed and all that God is going to do in judging the wicked, they are watching their salvation unfold as God gets rid of their enemies and brings them justice. But this judgment upon the wicked is not the victorious saints' only focus in heaven at this future time. In verse 5, these saints in heaven are singing to God Almighty and they ask this beautiful question. In verse 5, they say, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Their question is basically, Who in their right mind would refuse to fear you and glorify your name? given what they see with their own eyes of the glories of God in heaven and given what they see that God is about to do to the unrepentant wicked and given what they're experiencing of God's gracious goodness toward them and saving them through the blood of Christ forever in their minds, it is the height of insanity for a person to refuse to fear God and to give such a God glory. So how will you answer their question? Will you fear God? Will you stand in awe of his power, of his righteousness, and of his wrath? Will you glorify him by yielding to him and surrender and by believing in his son 
It has struck me this week, thinking about this passage, that we live in a society that is full of fear, that fears so many things, but doesn't fear God. In fact, here's the irony of ironies. As a whole, our society has cast off the fear of God, and our society has never been more riddled with phobias than it is now. How crazy is that? Our society thought it had grown beyond the need to fear the true and the living God. But it turns out that all we've done is replace the fear of God with anxieties and phobias about so many lesser things. And the cure for these lesser fears is to realize that your greatest fear should be the fear of God. And then you should run to Jesus and find resolution to that fear through Jesus and his blood that was shed for you at the cross. And then through Jesus, you will find peace with this God and know him as your eternal heavenly father. You will find your relationship with him to be the most meaningful relationship in your life. And then you will discover that you have nothing left to fear. So what will your decision be? Will you fear him now? Or will you stand in terror of him later? It'll be an awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God on the day of judgment. But it is a wonderful thing to fall into his hands of mercy right now when he stands so ready to save those who come to him If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, I plead with you to flee from the wrath of God. And the only way to do that is to run to Jesus and to find refuge in him and to put your trust in him. One day, there is coming a day when blood will flow from the winepress of God's wrath for hundreds of miles through the land of Israel But 2,000 years ago, Christ bore the wrath of God and allowed his blood to flow from his body in order to give you atonement for your sins and to rescue you from the wrath of this God. And it is only through his blood that you and I can be saved. Believe in him. Call upon his name, even right here where you are seated. He will delight to save you and to forgive you of your sins and give you something to sing about when judgment day comes. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a sobering passage, but it is your word. And it's what you have given to us for our good. And we thank you for it. And ask that you would give us hearts that are deeply ready to receive the message of these verses and to be benefited thereby and to live lives differently this week because of what we have heard and learned. This is a weekend, Lord, where we take time to remember those who have died so that we could enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation. And we do thank you, Lord, for so many who have sacrificially laid down their lives uh, 
for the freedoms we enjoy. And above all, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying down your life, for shedding your blood so that we could be spared the wrath of Almighty God. When this future day comes and we see what your wrath really looks like unleashed on a global scale, we, we will see your grace as bigger than we've ever seen it before. And we'll be so thankful for Jesus and the rescue that he has provided for us through his shed blood. Draw anyone here this morning, Lord, who does not, does not know you to a saving knowledge of you. And for thus, who, those of us who do know you, Lord, may we be sobered and encouraged by what we have seen in this passage. And may we be all the more motivated to go and share with others the good news of salvation through Jesus that they may be saved from this wrath to come. Use us, Lord. I thank you for how so many in this church do this wonderfully in sharing Christ with others. And may you continue to bless this body as we endeavor to do this and represent your name to the world. We surrender ourselves to you, Lord God, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.